this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirits Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to episode two of The Drinking Hour with me, David Kermode. Thanks for joining us. In today's programme, are you a master distiller? Well, apparently you could be as the gin boom has created a culture that anyone can. In reality, it should take years of experience to craft a spirit. We'll talk to author, writer and judge Joel Harrison about what's involved and why he thinks we need to be careful. Georgia is on my mind, the cradle of winemaking turned Soviet Union supplier. It has a fascinating and distinctive way with wines, which we are now apparently lapping up here in the UK. We'll hear from Master of Wine, Sarah Abbott, an expert on Georgia. Our Desert Island drinks choice comes from another MW, Richard Bamfield this time. We'll hear why he thinks Pinot Noir is the perfect grape for his stay as a castaway. Plus, across the hour, those wine and spirit recommendations, all medal winners, handpicked for you. And do get in touch. You can email us, thedrinkinghour at foodfmradio.com. That's the drinking hour at foodfmradio.com. The drinking hour on Food FM. Unless you've been living on the moon or under a rock for the last decade, you cannot fail to have noticed the craft gin boom. This venerable botanical blast has gone from old ladies tipple to hipster must have and quite right too. But with it has come a strange phenomenon. The notion that anyone in theory can be a master distiller, whether it's your garage setup or one of those make your own gin gift experiences. You apparently need no qualifications to claim that title. Can that really be true? Can it be right? What should it take to be a master distiller? Well, Joel Harrison knows, author, spirits writer, judge at the IWSC, a member of the Gin Guild, the Compagnie des Mousquetaires d'Armagnac, and a keeper of the quake. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Uh, it's an exhausting uh, honours list, Joel. Just before we start, do you want to, in a nutshell, tell us what those three titles actually mean? Oh, gosh, well, thank you for such a, uh, a lauded um, introduction there, David. Uh, yes, the, uh, they are... Um awards, I guess, that are sort of bestowed upon uh, people within the industry for their um, stoic nature of support for various elements of different spirits. So the, the uh, Musketeers of Armagnac is obviously with the Brandy Association within, within the Armagnac region of France. The Keeper of the Quake is the highest honour within Scotch whisky and the Gin Guild, a uh, Gin Guild rectifier, a member of the Gin Guild, is, is for my lifelong support of, of gin, which I think most people have these days, be it, be it through drinking or, or, or just yeah. buying it. 
Yes, I, I, I certainly do. But uh, and you actually the, crucially have earned those titles because yeah. you first highlighted this this issue uh, in a piece you wrote for Club Enologique last year. And I was genuinely astonished. Um, what should the title Master Distiller mean in your mind? Well, it's a, the problem these days with, with, with a term like master distiller is, is that there isn't really a definition around it, as you quite rightly point out. And therefore, it's open to abuse. And, 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 and that abuse is, is, in my opinion, widespread within, within this, this sort of uh, growing industry. And it should mean somebody who has had decades, and I, I pluralise decades quite deliberately, of producing consistent quality products. Um, and learning their craft and honing their craft, but also balancing the idea of, of being a master of their art, but with, with also being restless, you know, always being a student, but happy also to be the lecturer at times as well. Uh, and for me, that's what a, a master distiller should be. Um, and it's, it's all too easy these days for anybody with a, uh, a, a business card account with an online printing firm to, 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 to make themselves a business card with master distiller written on it. And, and uh, those people should be should be called out for it, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I checked online, uh, slightly disbelieving after I read your original piece, um, and I checked again yesterday, and it's still possible to buy a gift experience, uh, which is billed as um, become a master distiller. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I just, it made me laugh, actually, but what is the reality? How long does it take to have the experience uh, to be able to craft a fine gin? That's a really great question because I don't think there is a, a time scale on it, but there is certainly a, 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 some people are more adept at it than others, and some people have to train a long time to, to get it right. It's a little bit like kind of sports analogy where some people are fantastically talented at an early age and have an amazing you know adaptability to play their to play their sport, and some people craft a long time at it. You look at you know the fabulously wonderful uh, now media broadcaster Ian Wright who. I think was working on a building site until the age of about 22, 23, until he came to, 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 to first class um, soccer. But then other people, you know, look at Phil Foden at Manchester City, straight out the box, absolute genius from a very early age. And you do get some people who make very good gin with very little experience. Um, I look at one guy, Alex Davies, who's now at uh, Kyoto Distillery in Japan, who was at Chase and then was at Cotswolds. Very young guy, making fantastic gin. Would I call him a master distiller? I'd certainly call him a master of his art, even though he's, he's really re relatively young. On the flip side, you look at someone like uh, Desmond Payne, the sort of godfather of gin, who's been at Beefeater uh, for, for many, many decades. Before that was at Plymouth Gin. He has honed and crafted his art. And, uh, you know, there's not a single person in the world of spirits who wouldn't describe him as if not a master distiller, perhaps the master distiller when it comes to gin. Uh, and for me, so it, it, it's more about ability than it is about, um, you know, time at the, uh, at the still. Um, but even within that, there's a lot of things that you learn just through experience. And I think to become a true master of your craft, a true master of your art, uh, at time, uh, there is no substitute for time. We're speaking to a couple of masters of wine in today's drinking hour, and that's a terrifying process involving the most extraordinary, very rigorous examinations, uh, blind tasting exams. Uh, you have to do a, a long thesis. Um, most people who undertake the program don't get through it. Um, it it's, it's extraordinarily tough. And yet um, th there isn't a, a master of spirits equivalent, is there? 
No, and this is this is where spirits, I think, ha is playing catch up to some degree with with the world of wine. Um, I have huge, an enormous amount of respect for anybody who's managed to to gain those two little letters MW after their name, and and I really respect and, and understand the the hours and efforts and cost and expense in so many ways that goes into into getting that. We don't really have that in the world of spirits. You, you mentioned a lot of these um, uh, decorative uh, uh, titles that I have after my name, and you know, Keeper of the Quake and um, uh, Musketeers to Armagnac and all this sort of stuff. But these are bestowed upon you. You earn them because the committee tells you you're worthy of them. But 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 to have something that is is more tried and tested, is more rigorous, like the Master of Wine is, I think is is only is only a good thing because it puts up um, it puts up tried and tested um measurements for people uh, I, you know you wouldn't go and see a gp that hadn't been through the the rigorous standards of, of, of becoming a doctor and all that entails and uh, i think at some degree if you don't have these standards you you end up with quite well, quite frankly backstreet dentistry to to, to use a, a chris morris phrase but um and, and i think in the world of spirits especially with the master distiller role we end up with sort of back backstreet distilleries in that respect backstreet <laughs> dentistry of of master distillers and, and i think that's a shame i was going to say it's not quite as terrifying as a backstreet uh, dentist but actually having said that when you're <laughs> dealing with alcohol when you're dealing with uh, something yeah. that in the wrong dose can kill you um it kind of is quite terrifying really isn't you, it you're you're absolutely right there david and for me you know there is something to be said for craft distilling in the same way there is for craft brewing and and and, and I, I you know i love craft distilleries I, I i some of my favorite spirits come from craft distilleries but we shouldn't poo poo the major distillery companies and the major distilleries and the major brands i, I mentioned beef eater earlier you know mm. its legacy is phenomenal the fact it's it's managed to to outlast so many booms and busts in the world of gin every single drop of beef eater that's sold around the world is distilled next to the oval cricket ground in kennington in london you know this is not a this is a large craft producer if you want to put it that way but you have to trust what they do because they are producing something that could in the wrong doses as you say kill you and and i've had some terrible products from from, from craft distilleries that don't have, have haven't understood their cut point properly they end up with a product that is can be on the one hand dangerous quite often isn't but but just tastes nasty because they sometimes think that flavor comes through some of the more funky elements when really what you what you're dealing with quite frankly is is, is horrible poisons and that's not very nice you know we judge a lot of uh, of gins that come through and in my role as an IWSC judge. And, and that's the first thing you look for when you're judging a gin, is a quality-based spirit. And if you're leaving in too many of the fusel oils and, and, and horrible kind of uh, parts of, of a bad cut point, then you're starting off with, with dodgy foundations. And, and that's never a good thing for a gin. Just explain what you mean uh, by cut point in terms of uh, the mm. production of, of a gin. Absolutely. So. Any gin is effectively flavoured vodka. Um, and so you start by making a base spirit. Now, in Europe, we have a, a regulation that says gin has to use a 96% ABV base spirit. That's very pure. So effectively, that's, it. That, that's, that's a, a, a vodka. In, um, in America, it's 95%. And what that means is that extra little bit of uh, that extra percentage of flavor that's left in with it, it left in there uh, gives you some sort of base flavor to your to your spirit. Now, 
when you're producing the spirit, let's say you're, you're making a, a base spirit out of rye, for example, so you, you brew that up like a beer, and then you turn it into a spirit by, by distilling it, uh, separating the alcohol from the water. If you take a cup, which is the middle of that, you want to get flavor, but no bad alcohols in there. And if you take a cup too early on, you can end up with some um, quite uh, frankly, um, uh, harmful alcohol substances in there. And if you take your cup too late, you can end up with some really horrible flavors within your, within your, within your base product. And sometimes people can mistake those late cut flavors for body and personality, and it really isn't. It's just not very nice flavors. And, um, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a pure base to build our botanicals upon. You mentioned uh, you're a judge for the IWSC, and I think in other competitions too. Um, what exactly then are you really looking for in the perfect gin? Um, what we're looking for in a really great gin is balance, balance and complexity. So uh, the heart of any great London dry gin needs to be juniper. That's where our flavor comes from. And really any gin, juniper is the driving force. So when we stick our nose in the glass, we go on a bit of a journey. The first thing is, how's the canvas? Is the canvas clean? So this is our base spirit. And, and like I say, in, in some parts of the world, the base spirit can have a little bit of flavor to it because it, it's, it's not distilled up to the same um, purity levels that it is in Europe. So in America, if we're looking at, at an American modern day gin, you might have a touch of spice from say a, a rye based spirit. That's absolutely fine. But is it pure? Is it clean? Is it well distilled? Built on top of that has to be a heart of juniper flavor. So can the juniper shine through around the other botanicals that are in there? Then once we've identified that juniper is present, how do those other botanicals mix and meld around that heart of juniper? Is there balance? If you're delivering a citrus-led gin, I don't want that gin to be overpowered by citrus. I want it to be subtle, woven in, delicate. If it's a spicy gin, same thing. Those peppery notes should be balanced and carefully constructed around that heart of juniper. And then once you taste it on the palate, is it silky, is it, or is it smooth? Is a touch of oiliness to it? How do those um, flavors that are in the nose express themselves on the palate. And again, what are, what's the ABV we're dealing with? Is it a sort of navy strength gin at 57% plus? If so, are we just getting pure alcoholic power or is that power from the alcohol supporting the use of botanicals and flavors within the gin? The same in the lower end of gin up down to 37.5% ABV. Are we just getting a watery gin or are we getting flavors of spices and fruits coming through? And then obviously we do look at judging it too with, uh, with tonic. Um, that's a, a classic serve with gin, looking at how those flavors retain in the glass when tonic and ice are added. People tend to think of London when they think of gin because of the words London dry. It took me a long time to realize that's actually a bit of a red herring, isn't it? Yes, it is. London dry gin is a style of gin and, it, and it's often held up as the pinnacle really of, of gin production. Why is that? Well, some gins, cheap gins, very, very cheap gins can be made by just taking a base spirit and adding flavorings in. Uh, nobody really wants that. Uh, what we want is we want a spirit that's redistilled using natural botanicals. So a London dry gin is when the spirit, the base spirit, neutral spirit is taken and either the botanicals are put into the spirit and it's boiled up and that takes all the oils and the flavors of the botanical mix with it um, in the redistillation, or in some cases, uh, those botanicals can be hung in a basket above the spirit as it's 
evaporates through, then it picks up delicate flavors. Or you can do a mix of the two, uh, where you get the kind of more robust, uh, macerated flavors that come through from, from leaving the botanicals in the spirit, mixed with the delicate lightness of, of botanicals hung in a basket above the still. So yes, it's a, it's a real game to play, the London Dry style, but that's what London Dry means. It's an authentic way of making gin that is really held up as the sort of pinnacle of, of gin production. And what's your take on some of these fruit gins that we now see a lot of? I, I get sent samples occasionally of, of you know, things like sort of black currant and orange gin. And I, I must admit, I, I don't I love gin, but I, I never really fancy these uh, very much. What, what, what's your take on on these sort of fruity concoctions? The fruity concoctions of gins, I, I've got to be honest, as long as there's a heart of juniper there, then it's still a gin. And some of these can be phenomenal. One of my favorite products, which a lot of people forget about, is, is slow gin. You know, mm. that's a fruit gin. And um, particularly in a Negroni. Gosh, I love a Negroni. It's the, the drinks writer's drink, really, because it's just it's three parts alcohol. Um, when, when, the, when, when, when your dilution is ice, you know that you're into a serious stiff drink. But um, I love a Negroni, which is usually one part gin, one part sweet red vermouth and one part Campari mixed in a tumbler over ice. Uh, switch out your normal London dry gin and stick in a slow gin, quite often lower ABV, but it brings in this lovely, mm. beautifully bold, fruity flavour. And I think some of these pink gins are coming around today. There are some wonderful rhubarb flavoured ones. Um, there are some great sort of blackcurrant and, and heather ones that I've had, which are lovely. As long as they've got that heart of juniper, then they're still a gin and they can still be fantastic. Obviously, it's up to the drinker. Um, you know, it, do you like drinking pink gins? Do you like drinking rhubarb flavours? Do you like drinking strawberry notes in your gins? Yeah, why not? You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite quintessentially a summer drink um, most of the time. And, and I, I don't see any problem of having a, a rhubarb gin and tonic. Uh, for me, I wouldn't put it in a martini. I, I probably wouldn't put it in a Negroni. But I don't see any reason why those can't be equally as exciting and as accessible as a classic London dry gin. You're right about slow gin. Of course, that, I mean, that's been around forever, hasn't it? So it's, uh, oh, it's an extension it. of that, right. I guess. I do love a slow groni as well mm. Um, mm. In, in a Negroni. Yeah, definitely. Very nice. So you must, uh, you taste a, a hell of a lot of gin through your judging, uh, through your writing, uh, through your consultancy. Um, do you have a favourite gin? Good question. So um, there are different types of gins for me for different occasions. Uh, depends on the drink I'm making. So I'm a big martini drinker, but I like my martini ice cold with a twist and relatively dry. And therefore I like to choose this kind of citrus forward gin if I'm going for that. So citrus forward gins for me, something cracking would be like the Cotswolds uh, gin that they make. I really love um, just Beef Eater, straight down the line, Beef Eater, big fan of that. Or Tanqueray 10, that's really great on that front. If I'm having a Negroni, I like to choose something that's a little bit spicier. So with a spicy gin, I might go for, say, a Beef Eater 24, which is made with tea, um, or Fear, which has a spicy hit to it. Um, uh, so those sorts of ones, I think, are, are really, really good. And then if I'm just having a straight gin and tonic, I love a big spike of juniper. Um, the one that does it for me in a gin and tonic, I really love number three gin, which is made by the team at Berry Brothers and Rudd. Mm. And actually, if I was going to take a bottle of gin for all occasions, I think number three gin does martinis brilliantly. It does Negronis brilliantly and it does um, it does a gin and tonic brilliantly. That sounds like a great idea. And uh, I have to say, I, I like you, I, I really love the Cotswold gin. I, I think it's an absolutely fantastic mm. uh, product as well. So um, it's 
Brilliant talking to you as ever, Joel. Thank you very much indeed uh, for being on The Drinking Hour. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirits Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for our first trio of recommended drinks from the IWSC. All of them medal winners, all of them available to buy in the UK market. First up, a pioneering pink sparkler from Cornwall's Camel Estuary. You may have seen Rick Stein feature the vineyard in his wonderful Cornwall series recently. It was established in the late 80s by ex-RAF pilot Bob Lindo and his wife Annie and is now run by Sam Lindo, their son. Camel Valley Pinot Noir Brut Rosé 2018 was awarded 94 points, just shy of a gold medal, with the judges highlighting its vivid strokes of fresh red cherry and juicy red berries with heady aromas of rose and lily all stippled with fresh acidity. I enjoyed a bottle of this the other night actually and it was both thrilling and fabulously fruity and precise. It's at Waitrose for $29.99. Next, a scintillating saline grape from the Greek island of Santorini. Estate Argyros Assyrtico 2019 won a silver medal praised for its unique palate with complex notes of lime, grapefruit and pear skin, driven by minerality on the palate, creating a refined and charming style with lots of layers and great length. I love Assyrtico, especially from Santorini, where you can get such a blast of the sea. This one is $27.95 at Davies, that's daviewine.co.uk. And here's a gold medal winner that sounds like the perfect cocktail ingredient. Really unusual, this one. Muyu Vetiver Gris Liqueur, made in collaboration with celebrated mixologist Alex Cartena. It's inspired by the Amazon rainforest. The judges highlighted its perfumed nose and spicy botanical character. Floral lifted spice notes come through on a lingering musky finish. It's £29.45 at thewhiskeyexchange.com. I've been looking it up. I'm fascinated by that one. I'm going to have to try it. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Now we're off to paradise for our desert island drinks. Each episode of The Drinking Hour, we invite a leading industry professional to share with us their passion for a particular drink, a grape variety, a specific wine or spirit or a whole region and tell us more about it, why they love it, how we should enjoy it. Uh, Richard Banfield is a master of wine and you may know the name from his Banfield points awarded to specific bottles in Lidl's limited edition wine tour. More of that uh, later. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. Delighted to be with you, David. And you've chosen a grape variety that is much loved, especially by wine professionals. Uh, but it's also a, a rather canny choice. Uh, so tell us what you've chosen and why. <laughs> OK, this is going to be a long winded answer. Uh, I've chosen Pinot Noir, but that was primarily because of the way you phrased the question. If you'd asked me what single bottle would you like to have on a desert island, then uh -huh. I always say Madeira because I reckon I can make a small mouthful of Madeira go further <laughs> in terms of satisfaction and pure joy than any other wine. But you right. did give indication to be an ongoing supply 
And if there's an ongoing supply, mm -hmm. it has to be Pinot Noir. Mainly because it, it, it can come in so many incarnations. So it can be sparkling as a, a Blonde de Noir. It can be a still white as a Blonde de Noir. It can be rosé. And, of course, it can be red. So that's that's why I came up with Pinot Noir. Because, because frankly, I'm never quite sure what I feel like drinking. Um, and even on a desert island, we assume it would be sunny all the time, but there's no guarantee of that. There could be cooler moments. There could be sometimes when you know, I might feel like something more earthy and uh, maybe a bit heavier sometimes. Pinot Noir can do all of that. And so uh, so that that's why I've gone for Pinot Noir. It's a very good choice, although I have to say, uh, as you're on an island, uh, having a Madeira on an island does make a lot of sense. But anyway, we're going to stick with uh, Pinot Noir. It has a, um, a really very wide spectrum of character, doesn't it, as well? So uh, you can, you can assuming you've got that continual supply, uh, you can go from sort of fabulously fruity to really rather savoury, can't you? Well, that, that's right. So, I mean, Pinot Noir... I mean, look, one of the characteristics of it that we all adore is that is the perfume of Pinot Noir when it's younger, when it's more fruit driven and it's more primary in character. But then as it ages, uh, it does take on totally different characteristics and it can develop these savoury, earthy, sometimes mushroomy characters. One of my favourite uh, quotes in French when, when a winemaker is describing a, an old, venerable Pinot Noir is to say, sa mousseron, and that means that it's beginning to taste a bit mushroomy. And mm. <laughs> I really like that <laughs> phrase. And it does, yeah. Pinot Noir can take on that character. So yes, it is, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex grape in many different ways. But uh, yes, it comes in many different expressions, which is part of its charm as far as I'm concerned. And that complexity actually extends to growing Pinot Noir as well, doesn't it? I, I've, I've spoken to a few winemakers in the past who say, yes, well, it's a beautiful grape, but it's it can be a bit of a nightmare, can't it? Well, so I understand. I am no grape grower, and so I, I, I can't speak from personal experience here. But yes, I, I, I understand that is true. I think it's difficult when you've got a, a thin-skinned grape like Pinot, because I think that does make it more susceptible to rot and to disease. It's also, I think, uh, susceptible to... Well, it doesn't produce its best if it's being asked to produce high yields. And so it is, that's possibly why it's quite choosy about where it's planted, because it does need to be in a site that somehow naturally reduces yields a little bit. I think that really helps. And I think when it's produced in high yields, the wines can often be a little bit, a little bit insipid. I mean, it's a, it, it produces quite pale, often delicate wines in the first place. So you don't want to add dilution to that but through through high yields and Pinot Noir makes some of the world's most expensive wines uh, but you won't actually then in those wines see the varietal name on the bottle certainly not on the front anyway will you uh, no <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't stop them selling though does it no <laughs> it is I mean it is one of those yes I mean uh, one of my biggest regrets in wine is the is the confusion in wine labelling, which just seems to get worse and worse with every passing year and every new EU regulation, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, that's an old man talking, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it is tricky. I mean, yes, you'll see, generally speaking, on most New World Pinot Noirs, you'll see the grape 
uh, proudly presented on the label. And there's no question that if one looks at prices, I think that the words Pinot Noir do have a certain added value. I suspect the average price of a Pinot Noir is, is higher than a, a Merlot or probably Cabernet Sauvignon as well, I suspect. Um, but, but yes, many of the top Pinot Noirs, uh, particularly those of Burgundy, which I'm sure are the ones you're referring to, yes. they wouldn't feature the word Pinot Noir on the label. And you, 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 you just have to know that a Gevry Chambertin or a Nuit Saint-Georges is, is made from Pinot Noir. I don't, look, I, I, I sound cynical about uh, labelling. And I don't, you know, I, I think it is actually important that particularly for a grape like Pinot Noir that is so complex and is so site-specific, I think it is good that the individual sites that excel with Pinot Noir do, uh, do put their name on the label, because I think that would be useful for the majority of wine drinkers to see the grape variety it's made from. I suppose where I have my, my problems with the, the wine laws and the labels is that whenever how can I put it? Whenever the, 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 there seems to be a problem or an issue arises with uh, with labelling and local villages and everything, the solution seems to be, oh, well, let's add another one. Let's add another <laughs> appellation or another denominazione or whatever it is. And and that just seems to me to be moving in the wrong direction. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, it, it does um, it, it cause um, untold confusion, I think, uh, and it, it, it could be avoided. But uh, hey-ho, that's for another day. Um, I love Pinot Noir from New Zealand, where it's got that sort of wonderful, distinctive regional identity, uh, whether you're in uh, Martinborough or or, um, or Marlborough or down in Otago. Do you think it is um, uh, one of the most expressive grapes of Telwar? It's a, <laughs> it's a key question. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure it is in the sense that, I'm sure it is, Burgundy teaches us that it is. And I do think that Burgundy is the part of the world where, where Terroir is best expressed or the, 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 the finer nuances of Terroir are best expressed. Because of course terroir is <laughs> it's a much bigger concept than I think sometimes the, the, the French would like us to believe. I mean they they believe that a, you know a terroir is by necessity you know very small, possibly even half a hectare or something is 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 appropriate for a terroir. And there's there's no question that Pinot does express terroirs that are relatively close together but it expresses nuances of flavour between them. But having said that, I would argue that, uh, how can I put it, Riverland in Australia is a terroir. It is mm. just a very big one, and it doesn't change much for about 100 kilometres, uh, but it is still a terroir. Uh, so, it, it, and in New Zealand, you know, I, I visited New Zealand, I was lucky enough to spend a month there about two years ago, in 2019, and... I visited Marlborough, I visited uh, Central Otago, I visited everywhere, where Martinborough, everywhere where they grow Pinot Noir, and we tasted wines from Pinot in all those areas. I would love to be able to say I came back absolutely 100% confident that I could spot a Martinborough from a Marlborough or a, um, a Canterbury or a, or a Central Otago Pinot. And I, I, I honestly don't think I can. <laughs> and it, that's not, it, that doesn't mean that Pinot is not expressive of its terroir. I think it is. But I still think that in a country like New Zealand, which is relatively young in terms of its development with Pinot Noir, 
I still think that in many cases, wines are expressive of the winemaker as much as they are of the region they come from. And look, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, targeting that just at New Zealand. I would, I would say, exactly the, say exactly the same in Burgundy as well, uh, that you, you can see certain producer traits as well as village traits in Pinot Noir. And so I, I think, but there's, at the same time, I still would be relatively hopeful that I could spot a New Zealand Pinot Noir and hopefully a Central Otago Pinot Noir in a blind tasting. But it's very difficult. If you if you put me on the spot and said, okay, Richard, if you're so clever, explain to me why a Central Otago Pinot Noir tastes different to a Marlborough one, I, I don't think I'd be able to answer you. I think I'd try to avoid the question. <laughs> well, at least you didn't on this occasion, so uh, thank <laughs> you for, for not doing that. But uh, And you're an MW, so of course you could, by the way. We... Uh, we who are not put, put you you guys on a on a pedestal for your uh, your noses and and, and palates, but uh, that's very very honest answer. A veteran wine buyer once told me uh, that uh, three things in life were certain: death, taxes, and cheap Pinot being awful. Um, is that um, was that ever true um, uh, or fair? And is that still the case? <laughs> that's a, that's, I can see why the comment is made. I mean, it's. Mm. It, I think the word cheap uh, means something slightly different when it's followed by the words Pinot Noir than it does when it's followed by the word Merlot. Uh, I know I was writing a tasting night uh, for a wine um, yesterday, and I, in the tasting I said good value for Pinot Noir, because I think cheap with Pinot Noir might be, for the sake of argument, £10 a bottle, whereas cheap for Merlot might be five. So I think it is slightly different with Pinot. But look, I, I, I know where you're coming from. There's no question that in the past, a lot of inexpensive Bourgogne Pinot Noir was not very nice. And I, I, I do understand that. I, they weren't wines I chose to drink. And a lot of it wasn't, wasn't really good enough. And it sold because it had Bourgogne on the label. I think that is changing. I think Burgundy is much more consistent than it used to be. And I think the people who are making those less expensive Bourgogne Rouge and Pinot in Burgundy are actually doing a much better job than they used to. So I think there's been improvement there. Outside Burgundy, I mean, in New Zealand, I mean, New Zealand doesn't really do cheap wine. I mean, as mm. you know, the average price of New Zealand wines is quite high. And, and I, I, I applaud them for that. I think that's terrific. So they don't really do uh, cheap Pinot Noir. The country that does... Uh, the main, well, there, there are a couple in Eastern Europe. Romania does it, and some of them are good. Some of them are mm. taste inexpensive. Uh, but the country I think does do cheap Pinot Noir well is Chile, and the, you know the most successful brand in many markets is Connoisseur, and I think they do a really good job with it. I, I think Connoisseur Pinot is uh, predictable, but in a good way, consistent. And I think it's a, a, a good, authentic expression of Pinot Noir in almost every case. And uh, so I, I, I think it is possible to buy good Pinot Noir, but I guess Chile would probably be my, my first choice if that's what I was looking for. Yeah, and it's a, a great choice. I, I, I would agree with you there. I think uh, my I know many people who, who, who love those uh, Pinots from, from, from Chile and they know what they like and they know they're going to get it. And, and that's just great, actually. Um, time to show off. Um, what's the <laughs> finest Pinot Noir 
uh, you've ever tasted? Um, <laughs> I was you are allowed lucky, to show off. I was lucky enough to spend the evening with a friend. Uh, as you know, I work with Albert Bichot in Burgundy. And I, work, I, I spent an evening with a friend who works there, Philippe de Marcy, uh, with one or two other British friends. And he decided, much to our pleasure, to open some older bottles from his cellar. And the de Marcy family used to own, I don't think they do now, but they used to own a plot in Chambertin. And he opened in the course of that dinner. Um, from what I recall, he opened 71, 69, 59 and 47. And it was the single greatest succession of wines I've ever drunk. And they were fantastic. Um, so that, that's my, that is my greatest Pinot Noir memory, I guess. Whether they're the greatest wines I've ever drunk, it was a dinner, it was very convivial, it was typically Burgundian. I was mm. not taking notes. Well, I, actually, that's not true. I started taking notes and then just got carried away in the, in, in the moment. Um, so, so yes, that would be my, that would be my favourite moment. But I'm lucky, look, we, we, as masters of wine, we are immensely spoilt and we do get to drink and taste uh, top pianos from all over the world. So there have been others, but that's, that was probably the, the, the best sequence of pianos yeah. I've ever drunk. Well, that dinner sounds, um, sounds like oh, something else. Anyway, um, your name is now, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, familiar to shoppers uh, for your scoring of those um, little wine tour wines. So you get a, 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 you know, I had one last night actually, a, a Zibibo, and it was 90 points Ooh. from you, brief de uh, description. Um, how do you go about scoring those uh, wines? <laughs> Guardedly. <laughs> um, we, look, for, for the UK, I taste the wines with two other masters of wine. Uh, I find three is a good number because normally uh, it means that at least two of you are going to agree. And I know some people think that, you know, masters of wine, we all, we, we must all score, score identically. We taste a wine and we all think, oh, go, it must chorus. Well, it's clearly an 86. It's not like that at all. I mean, however objective we try to be, it, there is a certain amount of personal preference that invariably comes into play. But we, between three of us, uh, our palates complement each other. We give the wines the score without knowing the price. We don't taste blind because we do feel that being able to comment on authenticity or typicity or uh, of either a great variety or a region is important. So we do see the label, but we don't know the price, and we score on an absolute scale. We're not, we're, so we're not taking price into account because we feel that's the most valid way to do it. That way, if you do see a wine that, like, like the Zibibo, in fact, that costs maybe seven ninety nine, but scores ninety points, you think, wow, that's that's pretty good value. That's interesting. Let's try that. Whereas if you see a wine that scores ninety points and costs fifteen pounds. You know, you might think, more well, well, so it should. It should score 90 points at that price. So we, we think it, that's more useful information for the, for the public to do it that way. Well, I loved the Zivivo last night. I think it's, uh, as you said, uh, incredible value. I didn't realise that you didn't uh, know the price before you gave the score, but that makes absolute sense. And that was a, a, a really great wine. So uh, thank you for uh, your score on that. And uh, thank you for your time today, extolling the virtues of Pinot Noir as well, Richard. Uh, that's a pleasure, David. Excellent initiative.
And uh, I, well, I, I, hopefully, when you're back from your desert island, we'll be able to meet up in person soon. That'd be wonderful. Thanks a lot. Okay. All right. Bye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirits Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Time for our next selection of medal-winning wines and spirits, and we have a gold medal winner from Argentina. I was on the judging panel for this one, and I actually remember it well, not least because I absolutely love Cabernet Franc, especially from Argentina. Routini Single Vineyard Cabernet Franc 2016 was awarded a whopping 97 points. We said, tiptoes in with light cassis and layered minerality, then bursts into endlessly streaming blackcurrant with a nice savoury ripple. Tannins are like silk and the oak is poised with smoky spice. A witty, light-footed wine with long fruit finish and excellent typicity. It really was a magnificent wine. It's £26, which isn't bad for a gold medal winner, at Vignales. That's shop.vignales.co.uk. Next to South Africa and a silver medal winning Sauvignon, Spear 21 Gables Sauvignon Blanc 2019 was described this way. Garden Pea leads with minty hints on the nose, deepening on an effortlessly balanced palate that's explosive with mango and bell pepper. The clear, precise finish sews the palate up nicely. Spear is a renowned producer on the Cape and definitely one to visit if you're there and you love Cape Dutch architecture. The wine is £21.60 at thedrinkshop.com. And for blended whisky lovers, Monkey Shoulder Blended Malt Scotch Whisky from William Grant & Sons won a silver medal with the judges saying... Perfumed and floral with peach blossom aroma and a touch of elderflower, blending wonderfully with Madagascan vanilla and rich sweet honey on the palate, yet remaining light, fresh and slightly austere. It's widely available, including at Tesco, where it's £27.50. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. When it comes to making wine, Georgia can lay claim to being where it all began. Yet for most of us, its distinctive wines are still more likely to be a novelty. There are indigenous grape varieties with names that are unfamiliar, winemaking methods that are still relatively unusual, clay fermenting vessels that wouldn't look out of place at a garden centre. Georgia once made wines for the Soviet Union and is now in a fascinating transition, and it seems we can't get enough of it. According to figures from its national wine agency, exports of Georgian wine to the UK increased by 243% in the year to last October. That may be from a small base, but it's still a, a remarkable figure. Sarah Abbott is a master of wine and a specialist in the wines of Georgia, and uh, she joins us now. Sarah, hello. Hello, David. It's lovely to have you here, and I can't wait to talk about Georgia because you're always so enthusiastic about uh, your subject matter and, and your, I think, at your most enthusiastic when it comes to uh, to Georgia, you 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 live and breathe it. What makes Georgia so special to you? I think that if you love wine, and especially if you work in wine, when you discover Georgia, it's like coming across the lost ark of wine, because here is a country where wine is in their blood. It's so much part of their identity. 
There were vineyards everywhere. People grow vines in their garden. Mother Georgia, who is this uh, figure and um, literally a figure, a huge, beautiful statue that overlooks the capital of Tbilisi, she holds a sword in one hand and a wine cup in the other. <laughs> and the sword is for seeing off any marauding invaders, of which Georgia has had many. And the wine cup is the symbol of this legendary Georgian hospitality. And the thing about Georgian wine is that it's both really ancient, one of the most ancient wine cultures in the world, continuous wine cultures, but it's also newly reborn. And so it's very strong and deep, but it's also like a newly hatched baby bird in some ways. And it's full of paradox and discovery and heart and soul. So both as a wow. wine drinker and also as a sort of wine marketeer, there is so much to discover and so much to do. So, and also Georgia itself is just the most seductive, beguiling, fascinating, you know, um, paradoxical place. So all of those things combined yeah, I, I'm so grateful that I've had the chance to have this in my professional life. I, I do. I, it's not just a job for me. I feel it really emotionally as well. I think we're all sold now. Um, you mentioned <laughs> the uh, marauding invaders, of which there have been many. The history is fascinating and uh, at, at times uh, pretty depressing as well. We could spend all day discussing it, but give us your um, potted version and, and how that has impacted uh, the wine. Okay, so this is a tiny country in a place of grace. So Georgia, really it's amazing that it still exists as a nation. It's surrounded by really big and covetous neighbours, even empires. And all around Georgia, huge empires have risen and fallen and tried to nab Georgia for themselves. And yet Georgia still exists as a separate identity, as a, with its own very strong separate identity. So it's bordered by Turkey, um, Russia, Armenia, also have influence from the Middle East, from Persia. And the reason that Georgia is so coveted is that people often think, oh, Georgia, former Soviet Union must be a bit cold. No, Georgia is like a mix of either the Italian med and sort of Florida for, for Russians, a place where everything grows, very mountainous, and with this enormous range of climates and rich soil, uh, amazing diversity of crops and breeds of animals. And it's really a place of great generosity. And Georgians have this legend about how their country came to be. The Georgians turned up late. And he said, where are you? I've given away all the countries. And the Georgians say, I'm so sorry, we were feasting and singing and dancing in your honour. <laughs> That's why we're late. And he said, well, do you know what? In that case, I'll give you the place I was keeping for myself. And he gave them Georgia, which they call Skartvelo. And the reason I tell you this story is because I think it's really important to convey the essence of this kind of fierce poetic partying that really is not something that they do for tourists, this sort of almost defiant 
absolute intention to keep getting together and celebrating the fruits of the vine and of the land is something that is so strong in the Georgian culture. And they say, we do this because it keeps us strong. So there's a warrior culture in the deep history of Georgia. But this culture of let us feast, let us have these supras, mm. that's the name for the feast, let us have these toasts. And these kind of really rather poetic um kind of boozing parties is, is, is really distinctive and it's absolutely tied to their sense of themselves as needing to retain their identity and that joy makes you strong. Yeah, and it's that's right back really to that. Georgian. That um, you mentioned the the statue and the, the the cup of wine in one hand and the sword in the other. It, it kind of it really speaks of that, doesn't it? Um, it's um, fair to say that being a designated wine producing nation of the Soviet Union when that existed, which I believe Georgia was, and I'm, was it Azerbaijan? Was the other one? I'm not sure. It was Armenia. I can't remember. But anyway, um, the the um, being able to produce wine for the whole of the Soviet Union was actually something of a mixed blessing, really, wasn't it, for Georgia? Yes. So Georgia was really one of the breadbaskets of the Soviet Union, but it was very much designated as the wine place. Armenia actually became designated under the Soviet Union as the brandy place. Oh. And to this day, Armenia's brandy industry is still much more developed than its wine industry, although that is growing and fascinatingly so. But yes, Georgia was the place where wine was basically officially really ramped up under the Soviet Union. And Georgia didn't want to be part of the Soviet Union. In the 1900s, there was this brief flourishing of Georgia as an independent and modern nation. And that's actually when a lot of many of the, the chateaus that you see in Georgia were established. They were established with French influence via links with Russian aristocracy. And that's when you have, for example, Cabernet Sauvignon being planted in Georgia. And lots of these estates have been renovated now. And they're places like um, the Tsinandali estate, Chateau Mukrani. And they are the most glorious places to visit. They're like kind of slightly exotic French chateau put into these beautiful locations in Georgia. But then there was obviously the Bolshevik Revolution, very tragic time. And many lives were lost. Lots of landowners fled. And what happened in Georgia is that there was forced, basically, state ownership of farms. There was collectivization of farming, including vineyards. And under that Soviet Union, the idea was that they were, they thought they were sort of professionalizing Georgian wine culture. Mm. And they certainly, they brought in a lot of efficiencies. Georgia had suffered from the phylloxera epidemic, as you also had had in Europe. This is phylloxera when um, is, a, is a bug that basically attacks vineyards and uh, leads to the death of vines. So Georgia had suffered from that. But what happened under the Soviet Union is that the focus was on efficiency and also the focus was on 
a kind of consolidation. So Georgia had over 500 indigenous grapevine varieties. And this is one of the rich treasures of Georgia. And they are now being brought back into usage under a government-sponsored program. But what happened under the Soviet Union is that there was a focus on efficiency and two main grape varieties were designated. So there was a white grape variety called Rakatsateli, thinking of a cat sitting on a telly. And then there's a red grape <laughs> variety called Saparavi. They're both really good varieties. And they happen to be varieties that are very hardy. They are reliable. They're adaptable. And so you had a kind of homogenization of Georgian wine culture. And you also had a focus on the, the Russian market and a focus on making kind of perfectly reasonable but basic wine. And what happened is that um, although all commercial wineries had to be under state control, Georgians themselves carried on making, if you like, their wine, the wine they wanted to really make. It's, Georgians are really creative. I mean, mm. it's a nation of artists, painters, singers, poets, dancers. And it, it, it reminds me of Italy in the sense of the, the culture of individual expression. Georgia really has that. So Georgian families would continue making wine for themselves from their little patch of of vines, but they couldn't sell it commercially. So it, it kept the the diverse elements of the culture alive. But so the indigenous varieties survived, therefore, they did. Uh, yeah. th through those uh, individuals in on a very small scale doing that then. Yes, yes. And wow. Exactly. And what's happened is that you've had um, a program that actually was initially sparked off by individuals Sort of the Indiana Jones going figures going out, um, finding these old vines, getting them identified, bringing them back, having them replicated and grown. And there's now a state-sponsored nursery that has over 400 different vine varieties, and they offer these vine varieties as planting material to growers who are expanding or planting new vineyards. Gosh. So you now have all these other varieties coming back into production and you can buy the wines and drink them. So these are, these are all varieties that you are almost certain never to have heard of if you haven't been to Georgia. So Mitzvani, Kisi, you know, Ojaleshi, you know, it's, it's like a, it is like a lost ark of, of wine diversity. So, yeah, yeah um, I think generally Georgians would not say it was a, a blessing. The relationship and the attitudes with um, that Soviet history are very complex. And mm. they, I mean, the history is the history. What's happened is happened. Russia is still their biggest export market. But what they want to make is really these very high quality uh, grapes, these high quality wines from indigenous grapes. And um, we tend to think often of uh, orange or uh, amber wines uh, for, for, for you know, wines that uh, 
white grapes that uh, you know fermented on the um, on the skin. Um, but it's um, I mean they are a part of um, of, of of Georgian winemaking. But it's uh, it, there's a lot more to it than just uh, orange wine, isn't there? Yes. So orange wines, Georgians call them amber wines. So amber wines are really a speciality of Georgia, and these are, as you say, white grapes that are treated as if they were red grapes. So they're fermented with the skins. So they're sort of like the the fifth element <laughs> of, of wine style. Um, and they are a very long-standing part of Georgian wine culture. And they've been made continuously in Georgia for about 8,000 years. And they are predominantly made in vessels called quivery, which are clay. They look like giant clay amphora, but they're buried mm. in the ground. Um, I think we'll, we'll come on to that a bit later, but the mainstream actually of Georgia wine production is really diverse. So there are many dry white wines, actually, that if you're a fan of things like you know, Chablis or, you know, a nice Pinot Grigio from Italy or even something, you know, um, a Riesling from Alsace. Georgia kind of has dry white wines that are, you know, not totally alien to the way those wines I've just mentioned taste. And, and actually 70% of the production in Georgia is white wine because it's so mountainous. And when you drive, when you go and you start driving around, you have a lot of kind of white knuckle moments going over the mountains to get into mm. the wine regions. It's so mountainous. And therefore, of course, you've got lots of cool, airy terroirs, places where vineyards are grown. So it's predominantly a white wine region. And these are fresh, juicy, succulent white wines. And they are not some weird alien you know, experience that would do your head in if you're a kind of uh, more used to, if you like, European or even New World style wines. So what they have, I think, is a really lovely texture and they have the unforced drinkability of wines that you always find from countries with a deep gastronomic culture. Mm. So, and, and the reds, there are fewer reds, but the hero red is this grape, Saparavi, which I think is the greatest red grape that most people haven't heard of. I'm not it's the delicious. only one to say that. No, yeah. it's really good. It's really good. And it can make some really um, elegant, uh, uh, kind of dainty wines as well, can't it? Yes. So Saparavi is a variety like Pinot Noir and like Nebbiolo, which is genetically unstable. So this means that it changes its expression um, in the way that, that the plants themselves change depending on where they're, they're grown. They interact very sensitively with their environment. There are lots of subversions of Saparavi. And yeah, Saparavi can sometimes taste almost a bit like um, a Barbera from Northern Italy, you know, bright right. and crunchy and juicy. But then sometimes it reminds me more of something like almost a, a Malbec, you know, rich and, and mm. plush and, and almost thick. So it's really a, a wonder grape. And then there are lots of other red varieties planted in tiny quantities 
which actually often have their origins in the very mountainous regions. And these are they're the kind of style of red that I really like because they are intense, but they are not heavy. So yeah. they're light, they're perfumed, they smell of violets or dried rose, and they have naturally lovely fresh freshness and ripe, juicy fruit. So, and, and, and the majority of Georgian wine production are actually those two things, the dry whites and dry reds. The amber wine production is, as a percentage, it's very small. It's less than 10% of the mm, main production. Uh, tell us about the Quevery. Um, I mentioned in the introduction that the, you, these uh, amphora wouldn't look out of place outside a posh garden centre, um, yeah. although they're, they're usually buried in the ground. Um, why do they use them and why are they buried in the ground? Okay, so Quevery are one of the earliest examples of a type of wine technology. So. Quevery have been in continuous use in Georgia for making wine for 8,000 years. So 6,000 years BC, archaeological sites have been uncovered and explored, and it's been confirmed in the Quevery that they found there that those Quevery were being used to ferment wine. And Quevery look a bit like uh, a kind of giant sort of squashed egg. And people call them amphora, but actually amphora are like the shopping bags of the ancient world. They're portable. They were designed mm. for moving things. Quevery are much bigger than amphora and they are not portable. And the shape of the quevery, the materials from which it's made and the way in which it's used are all examples of empirical observed wisdom in how to control the fermentation of wine. The crevary are buried in the ground and they're buried in the ground for stability to help them not to crack but they're also buried in the ground because it's a natural cooling mechanism during fermentation. So your grapes are picked and um, squashed or put whole into the crevary and what then happens is that you punch down the grapes, just as you would do if you were fermenting in an open top barrel in, you know, France or Spain or, mm -hmm. or Italy. And what happens is that the, the shape of the crevery, this kind of, you can almost think of it as like a smoothed off triangle, upside down triangle. That shape encourages really good fermentation dynamics. So it really encourages your your yeast population um, that's on the skin of the grapes and in the cellar, it encourages that yeast population within the crevry to get healthy and to generate the, um, the community of yeasts that then, the population of yeast that then drives the fermentation. And the other thing that happens is that you have a, a natural moderating effect on the temperature. So if you're working with crevry as a winemaker now, you know if you've got a 2,000 litre crevry, your maximum fermentation temperature is probably going to rise to about 25, 26, maybe 28 degrees, which is the great, a great temperature actually for the fermentation either of red wines or full-bodied amber wines. 
Mm. So that's so winemakers will use larger volume crevry like that for those style of wines. If you've got a small crevry of a thousand to maybe fifteen hundred liter capacity, the maximum temperature that you get during fermentation is lower. So they will use those smaller crevry for the fermentation if you want to, of more delicate wines. So you know, in a modern winery now, if you're fermenting maybe in stainless steel, you can have dials where you'll set the temperature control. But crevry, the size of the crevry, the way that they are installed into the ground, and the knowledge that those winemakers had that they worked out in ancient times, got to this natural temperature control. The it's incredible, that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's, they're not some kind of hippie indulgence. When you look into <laughs> how they work and why they work, it's the most humbling wisdom. I could I could listen to you all day, although I think probably uh, that you've aroused so much um, excitement with your, your passion and your enthusiasm for Georgian wines that I, I suspect um, anyone listening is going to be thinking, well, where are these wines? Where can I get them? And I, I mentioned the sales figures in the introduction, uh, this, this huge rise in sales, albeit from a low base. But they are still, I think, relatively difficult to get hold of, Georgian wines, aren't they? What, what should we do? What should we look for? Where should we go? Okay, so, yes, they are not wines that you will find just by walking into your supermarket. Not yet. Although I know that some of the major supermarkets are looking at Georgia because it's become much more of a, a recognized name as a tourist destination, as a cultural reference and gastronomic reference. But it's independent wine merchants. But the great news is you can find them actually pretty easily now online. So Good. actually we have a... But I, I work for the Georgian National Wine Agency promoting wines in the UK and we have a website called georgianwine.uk and on that website we have a stockist list and we list and we try and keep up with all the retailers, independent retailers and predominantly independent online wine stores that offer Georgian wine and actually the range now is really exciting and diverse so i would say do have a look online and you can put a mixed case together either from a retailer that sells georgian italian spanish french australian you know mm. you could you could stick a stick a cheeky georgian into your next mixed wine order and you can have your you know six bottle mixed case of georgian wine so it takes a little bit more effort than just sticking a bottle in your trolley but actually, if you're happy to order wine, especially online, then you can actually get hold of a really nice range really quite Great. easily now. It's, so give us the, uh, the place to go for the stockist list again. It's www.georgianwine.uk. Yep. Great. And if you follow the links, we have a page there which says where to find Georgian wine in the UK. Mm-hmm. And you can filter the list by retailer or by online only, uh, etc. So 
yeah, it's great. Well, it's I really can, transformed the availability now. I bet. Actually. Yeah, availability is is such a, a nightmare. Otherwise, that's a really good idea. So, well, I can imagine uh, lots of people are going to be doing that. Um, Sarah, um, thank you so much indeed. It's uh, I could listen to you all day, and it's a fascinating uh, subject. So, um, thank you for evangelising about uh, Georgian wine. Oh, my pleasure. And um, well, um, Gama Joss, which means cheers. <laughs> cheers. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirits Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. That's almost it. There's just time for our final three medal winners from the IWSC judging process. By the way, if you want to know how the wines are judged, you can go back and listen to our pilot episode at the Food FM website, where I talked to Alistair Cooper, MW, about the judging process. A surprisingly affordable, easily available Bordeaux Gold Medal winner first, Cap Royale Bordeaux Superior 2018, won 96 points, earning it a prestigious gold. I was on the judging panel for this one, and I've subsequently stocked up on it myself as I was so impressed. We said this is masterfully crafted, textbook Bordeaux, remarkably accessible yet complex. Pronounced aromas of ripe cassis, red plum, bell pepper and leather, juicy blackberry and violet on the palate, harmonious and attractively smooth with a polished, classy tannin structure. And that's a Tesco for just £10, a proper bargain. It will keep for a few years too, if you hang on to it and you're lucky enough to have somewhere to keep it, somewhere cool and dark. Next, a silver Syrah from Sicily. All we need is some seashells on the seashore. Cristo de Campobello Syrah Lucira 2016. Awarding it 90 points, the judges said floral, clean, complex and layered with ripe black fruits, spices, smoked meat and leather. Bitter chocolate complements the firm integrated tannins. Rich, round and precise. That's £23.60 at vinissimus.co.uk. And finally, a gold medal winning rum that's a bit different. Equiano rum is the world's first African and Caribbean blend, a collaboration between two distilleries on two different continents, creating something entirely new. Described by the judges as elegant with the soft scent of oak, orange peel and chocolate, There's bright fruit character to the palate, supported by hints of licorice, which is well-rounded and lingers on the finish. It's $49.95 at equianorum.com. And that's it from The Drinking Hour with David Kermode here on Food FM for this edition. I hope you liked the recommendations. Thank you for tuning in. And thanks also to my guests in this edition, Joel, Richard and Sarah. If you'd like to stay in touch, then follow Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And you can follow me as well, please. Uh, I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget, you can email us with feedback, ideas or any thoughts on what you'd like to hear more about. It's thedrinkinghour at foodfmradio.com. That's thedrinkinghour at foodfmradio.com. Do please join us again next time. But for now, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.